This is episode 176 with 220 Marathoner, professor of anthropology at Durham University and author of Out of Thin Air, Professor Michael Crawley. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features the author of one of the most unique running books that you can buy today. Michael Crawley immersed himself in Ethiopian running culture, trying to discover the source of Ethiopian dominance on the world stage of endurance running. His book, Out of Thin Air, Running Wisdom and Magic from Above the Clouds in Ethiopia, is a deep dive into the insights of Ethiopia's rich endurance culture. But before we start, I want to make sure we're all running the same workout here. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, performance psychologists, elite athletes, registered dietitians, authors, and physical therapists, all who can help you elevate your performances. While you have to do the work, my goal is to show you the most strategic ways to do that work, to work smarter and more productively, so you can take your running to new heights. Because when you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll make better decisions about your training, leading to more effective running, fewer injuries, and faster races. Don't miss our other resources that can help you bring your running to the next level. We have a video channel at youtube.com strengthrunning, where I answer your questions, show you effective strength and core routines, and talk through your most pressing training issues. And of course, our home base is strengthrunning.com. For more than 10 years, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is also supported by our partner, SteadyMD. If you haven't heard of them, they offer runners a primary care doctor who's also a runner, so you can get better medical care. And it's all online. Get any labs or specialist referrals easily, never wait in line or pay copays, and have your doctor available via phone, text, or video chat anytime. Go to steadymd.com slash strengthrunning to see the details and what they've put together for you. It's a great service for hard-charging runners, and I'm proud to partner with them. Go to steadymd.com slash strengthrunning for more. Our show today is an interesting one. I'm speaking with Michael Crawley, an anthropology professor at Durham University in England. He spent 15 months training with the best runners in Ethiopia to figure out the secrets to their success. From their very different relationship to easy runs, metrics and pace, and even the social aspect of their training, this conversation will open your eyes to a different way of approaching running. But more than that, you'll see how running is life for many in Ethiopia and how the sport is an integral part of the Ethiopian identity. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Michael Crawley. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. You have written just a beautiful book about the running culture in Ethiopia. And while I've only had time to read some of it, it's already so exciting to be immersed in a world of running in such a far off place. Can we start maybe with a 60 second overview of the book so our listeners can get a feel for it? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm an anthropologist. I was in Ethiopia to do um, research for my PhD thesis. But this book's really 
trying to tell the story of, of my time in Ethiopia. I was there for about 15 months um, and sort of explain what it's like to to go somewhere where you don't speak the language and don't really know much about the culture and then to gradually learn about, um, in this case, Ethiopian running culture uh, as I went along. So the book kind of follows my journey really in Ethiopia from um, the first run that I did in the forest with um, with athletes who just sort of found me running on my own and sort of adopted me and pulled me into the into the group with them through to uh, meeting people like Jamal Yima, who's the um, Ethiopian record holder in the half marathon. Um, so it's about it is sort of, t- sort of tries to explain a little bit about what's unique about Ethiopian running culture and tries to dispel some of the myths around East African running at the same time. So I think we often have this idea that um, it, running comes to Ethiopians and Kenyans naturally, that they're sort of genetically superior in some way. And this book's trying to look at Ethiopian running success specifically as something that kind of derived from a culture of running um, and derived from uh, sort of institutional support for the runners as well. So um, trying to sort of, yeah, dispel some of those narratives about East African running, basically. Yeah. And it's just so interesting. And and I love how you mentioned uh, you going to Ethiopia, not speaking the language. And I'm sure running was this common thing that binded you to Ethiopian runners. And, you know, they saw you out running and they kind of pulled you in and adopted you. That is kind of what running does to people, doesn't it? It it brings us closer together. And, you know, it's almost like when you're out there running, it doesn't matter where you are, you see another runner, you give each other a little nod or a smile. And there's a certain kinship there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's something that seems to be even more the case at the moment with COVID and the, the pandemic and things that you go out running and runners really do sort of go out their way to acknowledge you and sort of, um, uh, yeah, say hi and, th- and things. But in Ethiopia, it's, um, I would say there's an even greater emphasis on the social um, aspect of running. So it's seen as essentially quite antisocial to go running on your own. It's re- really very rare that you'd see someone out um, running in the forest alone. <clears throat> and so that first day where I was kind of grabbed and brought into the group was a way of um, sort of uh, getting me out of that habit that we sometimes have in the West of of seeing running as this individualistic thing. And Ethiopia is very much seen as something that um, you had to do with other people in order to improve. So um, they would say running alone is something that you do just for health. But if you want to be changed and you want to develop as an athlete, you really do need to run with other people. Um, and so they see their success as really kind of collectively produced by the group and um, the kind of yeah training training together basically. Yeah, and, and I wanted to talk more about you know some of the differing characteristics of the running culture in Ethiopia as opposed to you know the running culture maybe here in the United States or in the UK where I'm sure it's very similar. Um, and you know the social aspect of things was something that did strike me in your book. Um, it's a very social activity. They rarely run alone. Um, are they all belonging to a team or a club? Uh, you know, what role does the group have in in their success as as distance runners? Because it seems like it is just integral. And, and I was struck by your note that, you know, if you want to run for health, you can run alone. But if you want to be changed, then you need to run with a group. What, what did you mean by changed? Um, well, that's kind of how they described it, that um, they would see... Uh, see sort of change and transformation as an athlete as being something that you 
you develop by learning from other people or from kind of adapting to other people's uh, pace in training. So um, as a young athlete, you would kind of apprentice yourself in a way to someone who is better than you. And then by sort of gradually learning to follow them and to um, to learn how to to run at their pace, then you you change yourself basically through that relationship with someone else. Um, so that was that was what they were getting at. There was this sense that you know, they use the word adaptation um, to describe training in Amharic, which the word is limamid. And basically, I think what that sort of gets at, what it implies is that they don't really, they never really spoke about talent or any kind of belief in sort of inherent ability. It was all about this idea that if you did the right things, then eventually you could adapt yourself to being a world-class athlete. So there was this sense that anyone could do it given the right circumstances, um, which meant basically being in the right kind of group environment and being able to go to the right places around the city to train. Um, so to make the most of different kind of environments, basically. But that, those are the, the things that they, they saw as necessary for being a top athlete, not kind of talent or any kind of genetic ability. Yeah. And, and the way that you describe it, it makes me really think that a lot of the, the mindset that we have maybe in the Western world about talent and about improvement and adaptation can, I, can actually be quite limiting because we get hung up on talent. We get hung up on what we are capable of today rather than on what we might be capable of in a year or two with the right environment, with the right adaptations. And so, you know, I'm just, I was just completely struck by the, the mindset seems to be quite liberating. And, and maybe one of the things that really sets Ethiopian running culture apart is that there's this undying belief that anyone can be successful if they work hard enough and if they surround themselves with the right kind of supportive environment. Yeah, um, definitely. I think some, sometimes I think about kind of physiological testing, going to the lab to sort of work out what your VO2 max is and things like that. It it does, you know, essentially what that does is it sort of sets a ceiling above which you're, you don't think that it's likely that you can progress, which seems like um, a bit of a shame in a way to submit yourself to that, I think. And um, most Ethiopian runners obviously don't have access to that kind of testing, so they don't, they would never um, set limits on themselves in that way. And I don't, I should, I should say I don't think it's true. I do think there's definitely, um, you know, differences in terms of natural ability between um, between the runners in Ethiopia. But the belief that um, that that's not something that's going to hold you back, I think, is is the reason why so many people are willing to train twice a day for five years, you know, to see if they get good enough. Um, and they, the fact that there are that many people who are willing to believe at that level must contribute in some way to having... Uh, as many top athletes as, as they have, basically. Yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, I just really think that, you know, if if the culture around running is one in which you think that you could potentially be a top 50 marathoner, say, then, you know, more people are going to try, more people are going to work hard. And when you have an environment where more people are making the attempt and more people are working so hard, it's obvious that, you know, you, you might have a situation where that population is going to be more successful because uh, they're not holding themselves back. And I, and I think that's an incredibly liberating mindset to have around running. Uh, now, Michael, you mentioned testing. And, and one of the things that I'm also really struck by and one of the most interesting aspects of the book is how a lot of these world class runners don't really focus on metrics the, the way that we do you know, maybe here in the United States, every step isn't tracked. They don't worry about pace all the time like we typically do here. And there seems to be a, 
a stronger element of play in their running with with some of the different workouts and, and things that they do. Is this advantageous in your view? How do you think this impacts their training and their mindset? Um, yeah, I think it definitely there's uh, very few runners who would go out and measure every single run with a GPS watch. Um, and that was something, those kinds of technologies were just gradually being introduced really when I started doing field work in 2015. And now they're, they are a bit more widespread. But um, at the time they were used, well, I think still now they're used very much selectively. You know, they would be something that you would you would maybe put on a GPS watch for one particular hard training session a week just to to be able to um, to be really kind of objective on in particular kinds of training. But for the vast majority of running in the forests and, and things around um, around where we lived, the idea of, of that running was really to kind of explore, to try to um, make the running a little bit more interesting and kind of creative. Um, and that was sort of consciously, I think, done in order to um, to make sure that running didn't become kind of boring and um, and something that felt like a chore. So I think they separated really between two different kinds of running, one that was supposed to be kind of objective and measured and another kind of running that was was kind of deliberately not supposed to be like that. Um, so on the uh, very rare occasions, people would bring a GPS watch to the forest, but it would be to see how slowly they could run. Um, so <laughs> often, it's kind of the opposite of what we would, we would often use that kind of technology for. So they would, um, they would see if they could jog, you know, at 10 minutes per kilometer pace or something like that, you know, really kind of see how slow they could do to, could go rather than how fast. That is just so counterintuitive to so many runners who uh, are, are just trying to do the exact opposite. And I was very interested in this example in your book where you, you were describing a workout that the group was doing. And, you know, it was almost a situation where you weren't sure when the running started, when the workout started. You know, there were some really easy jogging back and forth. There was a bunch of drills and, you know, it was almost like the workout kind of naturally evolved and there wasn't a clear time when, okay, now is the time when I start my GPS watch. And, and that is just so foreign to so many Western runners who, who just want to track every little step and every meter that they run. Yeah, I think that I think you're talking about the bit where I, I describe a run on in Toto where the, uh, which is the kind of mountain of, um, in Addis and the yeah the coach wanted them to wear a GPS for it he gave basically not many of the athletes had a GPS watch of their own but the coach had one that he would sometimes give to the groups that he could monitor what was going on Um, but they didn't really see uh, measuring the running that they were doing in the forests as being a, a useful thing so it was kind of the runners kind of rebelled against the coach in that instant um by uh sort of pretending to have started the watch but not actually starting the watch so that they would because they saw they they, they basically thought that um running in the forest should be deliberately about going up and down hills and zigzagging in and out of trees and, and things like that so it wasn't it was seen as something that shouldn't um shouldn't really be measured in in that sense uh and yeah the, the runs that kind of run we would get get on a bus at sort of five in the morning arrive at training at about six just as sun was rising and then you know people are quite groggy when they've just got off the bus so the beginning of a run would often be sort of everyone just walking to begin with then very slowly starting to jog and then eventually the group would kind of coalesce I suppose and then somebody would be in the lead and everyone else would follow and it would sort of start but it would um it took me a while to 
to get used to that kind of way of um, going about training, I suppose. Yeah, here here in the states, it's kind of like a you know we're either staying still, we're going zero miles an hour, or you know we're we're running our easy run pace. You know, there's no easy jog at the beginning. And I've read before how not just Ethiopian runners, but a lot of East East African runners will you know, start the first one, two, three kilometers of a run at nine minute mile pace, 10 minute mile pace. And, you know, you were mentioning 10 minutes per kilometer, which is, you know, incredibly slow for these kinds of runners who could probably jog along at, you know, five minutes a kilometer and really have that be pretty easy as well. What is the, what is the, I guess the mentality difference between being confident enough to run so slow at the beginning of your runs compared with, you know, a lot of recreational runners. I I struggle with that too. You know, I I could run a 930 mile to begin with, but that somehow doesn't feel right to me. What what is the the mindset difference there? Uh, I I think they see slowness as something that has to be learned as well as speed, you know, that that, that that's a skill in itself to, to be able to learn to control yourself and to go slow enough on the easy days to to kind of make the hard days work for you, um, basically. So, the, and, and I think as well, being at such high altitude and and running such kind of the, the sort of volumes that a lot of the runners do, then they that's a skill that they really have to learn if they're going to survive the the training schedules that they have. Because um, to do the three really hard sessions a week plus all the volume, um, I think it's something that they've kind of learned by by doing it that if you don't take the easy days really easy then you kind of burn out and that's the phrase that they they use the phrase burning yourself up um for doing too much and 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 burning out and so i think people are very aware of that kind of um energetic limits i suppose and and that's why they learn to to go slowly i i think it's really fascinating how there is kind of this idea in, in your book that these runners have that, you know, you can get burned out by running too fast, but not necessarily from running too much. You know, a lot of these runners are running high mileage and, and the volume of what they're doing is relatively high. And I know from talking to, you know, thousands of runners over the last decade that I've been doing this, that, you know, the idea in here in the United States is almost flipped on its head that a lot of runners will be really cautious about running more mileage, about running higher volume, but they have no qualms with, you know, turning every run into, you know, kind of a race where, you know, every day is a moderate effort and, you know, they have no true easy days. And I just think that is such an interesting juxtaposition and and maybe one of the really valuable nuggets of training wisdom to, to come out of your book for uh, at least United States runners. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, and often the, um, so the second run of the day would often be sort of 40 or 50 minutes, but of really, really slow running. And that would be sort of viewed more, more or less just as a way of massaging the muscles and getting ready for the next day's training. So some of the runs are, are really seen, um, I think, you know, runs that we, we call recovery runs, you know, the run, the, the runs that you do at sort of seven minute miling, uh, or something like that would for, you know, if you're a, um, if you're like a 30 minute 10 K runner, you do your easy runs at seven minute miling for them. The easy runs would be, you know, uh, as slow as sort of nine minute miling for, for someone who is running 30 minutes for 10 K, I think. Um, and I, I suppose for me, like I don't do as much of that really, really slow running when I'm back here because my life's so busy that 
fitting in the kind, that kind of running, which takes a lot of patience to do, is actually quite challenging. So it's probably possibly also a symptom of them um, all being kind of full-time athletes or having a lot of time to dedicate to the running as well. Right. And, and probably indicative of the culture or the environment that they create for themselves as athletes that's just more conducive to, to training like that. Um, one of the other things that I was really struck by in your book, Michael, was uh, the importance of the athlete's surroundings. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, the environment of Ethiopian runners and how that's really important to them? Because I understand it's a source of, of strength and energy for them. Yeah. So most of the conversations that people had about training were not sort of specifically about um, what kind of intervals they were going to do or how far they were going to run. It was normally about where they should go around the city um, in order to get the most benefit from their training. So they would go up to Intoto, which is the, the mountain that I described, where you can run up to about 3,400 meters above sea level. Um, when they And they would go there specifically to run slowly and to kind of build endurance. And then they would go to a place called Akaki, which was much, much lower, um, still high, by, you know, for me, at 2,200 meters. But they would go there because it was sort of 10 to 15 degrees warmer and they could run fast there because um, the altitude was lower. And they would try to sort of, I think the way that they conceptualized it was, to sort of put themselves within the within the kind of play of different environmental forces in a way that was going to make them faster. So um, they would sort of plan their week around uh, around different places and different surfaces in order to um, in order to get better. That reminds me of running in college. You know, we would d use the track for certain types of workouts, but we also had you know, off-road venues for workouts. We had a place where we did long runs and then some places that were just really great for easy recovery runs where, you know, it was kind of hard to run really fast, whether it was a technical trail. I, I think that's a really great strategic way of looking at, you know, the surface that you're running on and the altitude in this case to to really help your training. Is, is there a way that, you know, non-Ethiopian runners who aren't in these, you know, world-class running groups, can we benefit from this in some way? How can we be more strategic taking this in mind? Um, well, I think you touched upon it there with you, with what you said about sort of deliberately finding places for your easy runs where it's hard to go too fast. Um, so uh, like, I, I think we often think about we sort of separate ourselves out into road runners versus trail runners um, versus track runners, for example. And actually, if you go to look at um, the best runners in the world on the roads, most of them, most of what an Ethiopian marathon runner is doing would actually more closely resemble trail running than um, than road running. So they they run maximum once a week on the road. Um, they try to avoid running on hard surfaces as much as possible and a lot of the running is really kind of technical trail running and that's as you say deliberately to try to make sure that they can't go too fast um so some of the runs in the forests we would get to places that were so steep that you'd have to sort of use your hands to pull yourself up slopes and things like that and i would get to the point where i was just thinking you know this is crazy this isn't this is more like being on a hike than being on a training run um and i'd start to get frustrated and then i'd remember that you know some of the guys that I was with had run two eight two nine for a marathon. So, you know, who was I to tell them that, that they were doing the, <laughs> doing something wrong? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think trying trying to use the environment in to in your in your favor basically. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I get a lot of questions about this. You know, can I run trails if I'm training for a road marathon? And I, I admittedly have to shake my head a little bit and scratch it because I'm, I'm confused by that. You know, no matter if I was running track in college, training for a, a trail race or a road marathon, I would always try to run most of my runs on different types of softer surfaces. And so for me, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it allows you to build a little bit more athleticism by running on some of those gnarlier types of terrain that will challenge you in different ways. Uh, and then, you know, when you actually do need to run very fast during a workout, you you have that uh, venue available, whether that's a smooth, flat, fast, marked path or something, or perhaps the track. And so I think that's uh, a valuable way to look at your training and to look at you know, the places where you do your different types of runs to use them for maximum advantage. I think that's super smart. Yeah. Um, and so Jamal, um, who I mentioned at the beginning, who, who holds the Ethiopian record for the half marathon, when he made his half marathon debut, uh, he ran 59 minutes flat. He'd only run on the roads. He'd only done three training sessions on the roads before that. So everything else was on the, either on the track or on the grass or on softer surfaces because they, the training group he was in at the time basically just said you know you can't run on the roads it just kills your speed completely um and so yeah that it didn't obviously didn't do him any harm that he hadn't run on the roads much before he made his debut on the roads yeah and and i think such a valuable lesson is you know if it's good enough for a pro runner or someone of this caliber, it's probably good for the rest of us. So that means maybe running on some more technical terrain and going super slow on your easy runs or, you know, running a lot on softer surfaces, even if you are training for a road race or maybe just starting your runs super, super slow. You know, there's a lot to learn uh, from the training habits of these world-class runners that I think in some really important ways contribute to them being world-class runners. Um, now you have, you had such an interesting experience, uh, living in Ethiopia, uh, not just as an anthropologist, you know, you're a 220 marathoner. Uh, what, what do you think most surprised you about either the training or the culture surrounding running when you lived there with these athletes? Um, biggest surprise. Uh, I think I was surprised by how, how slow a lot of the training runs were and the fact that I was actually able to keep up in the first place, um, with a lot of the training, I guess. And then, um, just how, how strong that belief in, in the group environment was, uh, was really striking. I think just the, this, this idea that it was sort of, yeah, deeply antisocial to run on your own. And that extends to other aspects of Ethiopian life as well. Like if you, if you sat in a restaurant and ate on your own, that would be seen as like the weirdest thing as, as well. You know, it's like this kind of um, uh, collective sort of social life is is really, really important. And that was something that, um, that I learned quite quickly that as an anthropologist, you know, you do often end up spending a lot of time sitting, reading or taking notes, writing and uh, on your own and that was just seen as like super weird basically by the the people that I lived with so in the compound that I was in with other runners they would sort of drag me out of my room if I was trying to sit on my own um and that was yeah, they would they would worry about my sort of mental well-being <laughs> from wanting to be on my own even for <laughs> of hours a day um but that was I mean that made it uh that was kind of what made it such a rewarding experience that people were willing to um spend so much time with me and and, and stuff as well though. So it's good. 
Did, did that have any long-term effects on you? Did you come back to the UK after your time in Ethiopia and feel weird sitting alone at a restaurant or, or have trouble going for a run by yourself? Did it have any kind of those long-term impacts on you? Um, it Well, I, I ended up doing a, quite a bit of my training on my own once I got back to Edinburgh just because I had... Um, uh, I had a daughter and didn't have that much time to go meet up with people and things. And then also you find just uh, like as a sort of 220-ish marathon runner in um, in Edinburgh, there weren't that many people I could train with. So I went from being, you know, the slowest person in um, in the group in Ethiopia by a long way to being sort of, sort of struggling to find people who who I could run with on, on longer sessions and, and things once I got back to Edinburgh. So it was a bit difficult to um, to get that balance. But uh, I'd, I'd love to find a, a training group like I had out there um, back here, but it's quite quite tricky to do that in the UK sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And that training group is is maybe one of the things that that helps make Ethiopian runners so successful. And you know, this question of you know why are Ethiopian runners so good? Uh, these East a- East African runners who hold so many records, and not just the records, but it's also the density of performances that are at the top. So top twenty performances in the marathon, the ten k, etc. A disproportionate number of those performances are held by Ethiopian athletes, and so you know, let's try to tackle that question. What is the Ethiopian secret sauce? How do they approach running in such a productive way that they are able to be so successful on the world stage and and have so many athletes be so close to the best performances ever run? I mean, I'm sure it's so many different things working together, but let's maybe talk through some of those and, and how they interact with each other. Sure. Um, I think one of the main things that people don't realize when I think often when you you kind of imagine the trajectory of an Ethiopian athlete, you kind of think about things like uh, someone running to and from school barefoot and then sort of getting into running in quite a natural way. Actually, there's like this huge institutional structure of athletics in Ethiopia. So there are loads of training camps at um, local level. Um, all around Amhara and um, Aromia regions, where if you're if you show any kind of promise at school, then you'll be brought into a um, kind of a, a sort of camp training environment, basically where you're living with other runners. Uh, you have a coach. Everything's quite structured, so it, it's it's quite different, I think, to what a lot of people imagine. And then um, if you do well enough from that kind of um, rural setting then you move to a camp in a, a regional area where you're running for a um, a club and you're getting paid a small salary to run and then if you do well enough at that level then you go to Addis and you run for a first division club where you're paid um, enough to live on so there's there's like a lot of athletes in Ethiopia who are supported either by the state directly or by um sort of organizations that are connected to the state in some way. So like the Amhara Prison Service has an athletics club. Uh, the main Ethiopian commercial bank has an athletics club. Um, the cement factory has an athletics club. And they all support the athletes to basically be full-time athletes. So um, that's just a massive difference with, with the UK anyway. I know that in the States, there's quite a lot of professional training groups and they they also produce a lot of athletes that have success. But on Ethiopia, it's, in Ethiopia, the the scale of that is even bigger, I think, and um, and Kenya as well. You know, from what I know of Kenya, the army and the prisons and other um, sort of entities like that also support a lot of athletes. 
Wow. It's almost like there's a, a corporate support for just a- athletic development, which, man, that sounds so exciting to me. Yeah. So, I mean, and you look at Japan, they have something quite similar where there's, I suppose it's about just getting enough people who are, um, who are supported to train full time and devote enough sort of time and energy to, to trying to get to that level uh, that, um yeah, there's only a few countries in the world that do that, and they all seem to produce quite a lot of decent runners. So, and then and that's the decision made by the Ethiopian government, sort of uh, based on the success they were already having, I suppose. So, it's I don't know where the cause and effect are exactly there, but um, it certainly seems to make a difference. Yeah, it almost seems like there's this distributed America's Got Talent version of <laughs> Ethiopia's Got Talent in Ethiopia, but it's solely focused on running. And they're just always on the lookout for anybody with a little bit of talent. And then they'll really, you know, pour the gasoline on that fire. And, and that sounds really exciting. It's almost like there's a national project to find talented runners. And, and that's one reason for it. Um, you know, I, I can't help think that our discussion about mindset and their belief in if I do the work, then I will get these adaptations and I could potentially be one of the best runners in the world. That kind of belief system, I think, must be part of their success, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's like, um, partly it's not necessarily believing in talent, but also I think there's sort of certain uh, beliefs sort of connected to Amhara culture or connected to uh, religion that are also important there. So people... Um, most of the athletes that I worked with were um, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians and they believed most of them that God had some sort of plan for their life that involved running so that um, that if they worked hard enough then God would reward them and that's kind of a narrative that also involves sort of suddenly being um, elevated to a position of kind of transcendent (laughs) ability I suppose so they even the even for athletes who didn't um didn't seem like they had that promising a future seemed to have this idea in the back of their mind that um, sooner or later, you know, you might get this kind of divine intervention that would lead to you being, um, being really fast. And I think that's that kind of religious belief seems to also be something that exists in with a lot of American athletes and various other athletes, I suppose, around the world, but it was definitely quite a strong uh, belief in Ethiopia. Yeah. And of course here in the United States, I'm thinking about Ryan Hall and Sarah Hall to, uh, endurance athletes who who have talked about religion being really important to them, uh, both you know as part of their performances and as a source of inspiration and, and motivation. And I, and I can't help but think that you know believing in something bigger than yourself and having a, a bigger reason for doing what you're doing is important to them. Yeah, absolutely. I actually met Ryan. He was in um, Ryan and Sarah were both in Ethiopia when I was there. Um, and he said, I asked him where his favorite place to run was. And he said in Toto, the, um, the mountain. Um, and he said it was because there were, because of the kind of churches up there and things. And he felt especially close to God when he was on that mountain. So um, there's an Ethiopian connection with Ryan Hall as well. Yeah, no, no doubt that you're in the middle of a tough workout and, you know, you feel you're feeling close to God. There's probably a, a better chance that you're going to stick with that workout than someone who who doesn't have that belief in them, someone who is not running for something higher than them. Yeah, totally. totally. So Michael, if, if you were to think back on everything you've learned from running with these amazing athletes, from being immersed in the Ethiopian running culture, 
What are maybe two, three, four ideas that could help runners in the Western world not necessarily directly emulate what these Ethiopian athletes are doing, but you know, some training principles, some mindset principles, some ideas that would help them both in their training and in just their relationship to the sport. What might you say to that? Um, well, I'd say, first of all, find a group if you possibly can. Um, I've talked about that a lot, you know, just um, the importance of having the kind of social support around you to, to succeed. Um, and then I think it's about trying to culti- deliberately cultivate this mindset of kind of creativity and adventurousness with your running where you don't just get into the same old routine and you try to think of ways of um, deliberately making running more interesting. So um, one of the things that the guys who lived in the compound with me sometimes did was that they would um, get up at three o'clock in the morning to go and do hill reps um, just to kind of make it a bit more of an exciting sort of excursion on a Saturday night. <laughs> um, and, you know, things, it doesn't need to be something like that, but, but trying to think of ways to, um, to make what can become a kind of boring activity um, as interesting as possible. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to think about your training in terms of um, a balance of different environments that you can use in order to succeed. So, um for me, when I came back to Edinburgh, uh, they the guys in, in Addis were kind of asking me what kind of places I had to train. Um, and I said, well, you know, the only way of emulating Ethiopian, the kind of training I was doing when I was in, um, in Addis was to go to the golf courses and run on the golf courses or to go to the mountain, go to Arthur's Seat and sort of run off-road, really kind of hilly sort of mountainous type running. Um, so kind of trying to seek out those kinds of environments, I suppose, to, to make running a bit more interesting. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, when I was training with one of my great friends who's a much more talented athlete than I ever will be. Uh, we were running, you know, 80, 85 miles a week. He was running a little bit more than that. And he would want to run one mile on a stretch of road just back and forth for, you know, a 10 mile run almost every day. And I'm like, come on, man, let's go explore. Let's go, you know, run somewhere we've never gone before. Because for me, that's exciting. And it's one of the reasons why I love running. You know, you can just go explore a city, you figure out how things are laid out. I think it really gives you a better sense of direction. And it's just one of the reasons why I love the sport so much. But man, it just struck me as one of those things that maybe is is so different in the mindset of some runners yeah what was the logic for running up and down the road just to for injury prevention or something like that well it was a a grass stretch so he was able to stay off any kind of hard surface and he also didn't have to cross any streets so there was a little bit less of you know logistical problems with waiting for red lights and things like that and you know i think it was just a little bit of comfort too you know i don't have to go too far i can stay right here i'll get in exactly the kind of run that i want and it's a little bit more controlled in that way totally yeah it's an interesting different way of thinking about injuries because <clears throat> i was always scared about running some of the runs that we did in the forest where it was really steep um we'd often be running on a camber there'd be kind of rocks in the way tree roots things like that and for me that was like there was an acute risk of twisting your ankle in um quite badly in in that sort of environment but that's not they weren't thinking about it in terms of those kind of specific incidences they were thinking about it in terms of trying to have as much variety of the kind of angles in your um, that your legs are at and which muscles you're using and things in order to avoid the kind of monotonous um, 
use of all the same muscles in all the same ways all the time. So it's kind of, yeah, an interesting um, difference in the way that they view those kinds of environments, I think. I just think that's fascinating because I've always, you know, as as kind of as a runner, but definitely as a coach, will certainly encourage athletes to introduce that kind of variety into their training and their distance runs. Uh, but, you know, I, I had a friend once that, you know, he's training for a Boston qualifying marathon and he would never run on any off-road surface because he was so terrified of twisting his ankle. And, you know, my thought to that was, that just means you need to run on more off-road surfaces to get better at it and develop some more strength and coordination and, you know, the ability to run on that kind of terrain. And again, just a, a fascinating difference in mindset there. Yeah, totally. And so, so much of the running in the forest is kind of zigzagging backwards and forwards and sort of turning almost 180 degrees around trees and things like that. Um, and when you watch watch them start to sort of accelerate on on runs like that, you see how when Ken Anissa Bekele used to win the World Cross Country um every year like it was nothing you see where that kind of acceleration around corners and 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 things like that comes from um oh yeah cross country is so dependent on that and no doubt that that kind of running was was so helpful for them um michael this has been such an interesting conversation and i can't wait to finish your book i'll recommend it to everyone i talk to out of thin air running wisdom and magic from above the clouds in ethiopia thank you so much for being here is there anything I missed? Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with uh, a note of wisdom that you learned while you were spending some time there in Ethiopia? Um, but just the the sort of closing statement, the closing quote from the book, which is from my friend Ahailie, who um, really helped me with a lot of the sort of translation and arranging things, uh, who just simply said, running is life. <laughs> just to remember that. I love it. <laughs> that kind of sums it up, I think. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. And there we have it, everyone. I hope you found value in this conversation. And if you did, go ahead and share this episode with a friend who might also enjoy it. A review on Apple Music would also make my day. Now, I also want to thank today's sponsor, SteadyMD. They're like a personal concierge doctor for endurance runners, helping you with nutrition, recovery, and injury issues that a regular PCP usually can't tackle. And if you have ever seen a doctor or a physical therapist who has no experience with runners, then you know how valuable this is to hard-charging athletes. Having a doctor who gets you and understands your running goals, who understands the injury treatment process, and how much running is important to you is priceless. They have 24-7 access and a doctor who's also a sub-three marathoner, so you know you're getting great runner-specific care. Go to SteadyMD.com slash strengthrunning to see if they have any spots left and check out all the benefits of working with an online doctor who's also a runner. That's SteadyMD.com slash strengthrunning to see all the details. Thanks for listening, everyone. I appreciate you so much being part of the Strength Running community. Until next time.